Kia ora, I'm Jessie Chang and today on The Detail The US We must shape the rules that will govern the advance of technology and the norms of behaviour in cyberspace China Its latest five-year plan gives new insight into how Chinese authorities plan to strengthen its high-tech might Locked in a tech war I've heard it referred to as techno-nationalism So it's a new, um, it's kind of like the Cold War, but it's on technology. And New Zealand is getting squeezed in the middle of it, balancing the politics of our biggest trading partner on the one hand with our Five Eyes alliance on the other. Our tech sector, famous for its niche products, is booming. Last year, it brought in $12.7 billion of revenue, up 10% on the previous year. It aims to be our biggest export earner by 2030. But there are a couple of big storm clouds ahead. Later in the podcast, we'll be looking at how we play the Switzerland card to avoid getting crushed in the cyberspace battle between the US and China. First, though, there's a big ethical dilemma. How do we know our innovative products aren't ending up being used for some purpose that most Kiwis would not approve of? Specifically, how do we ensure that our technology industry isn't contributing to what some have labelled genocide by China? There is no clear divide between saying this technology only has benign good civilian applications and could not be used in coercive ways. That's Natasha Hamilton-Hart, the director of the New Zealand Asia Institute at Auckland University's Business School. In many cases, it's inherent to the technology that there is this dual-use capacity, and a lot is going to depend on the nature and objectives of the country that rolls out that technology. And when you are collaborating with firms or research institutes that are in China, and China is clearly engaged in large-scale systematic human rights abuses uh, in much of its territory, uh, but particularly in the western provinces of Tibet, you know, Xinjiang, uh, that is targeting particular ethnic minority groups, it is almost impossible for any New Zealand collaborator to say, no, nothing we do will ever feed back into that effort. Because the, the reality is, is no New Zealand company or research institute can control what its Chinese partner is going to do or be compelled to do. It's going to be, you know, Chinese firms don't have the luxury of being able to say to the Chinese government, no, we're not, you know, we don't want you to use our technology in that way. And so whatever assurances they might give to their New Zealand counterparts, they don't have credibility because Mm. they are in an authoritarian system. They will not be able to control the end use of their technology. And so when we engage in collaborations with Chinese partners, we need to do so knowing that there is no clear divide between the Communist Party and commercial entities and the ultimate uses that that technology will be put to. And this isn't a hypothetical scenario. Last week, Stuff Circuit revealed the names of New Zealand tech companies with links to controversial Chinese tech company, iFlyTech. Since 2017, there have been concerns raised publicly about iFlyTech's technology being used in the human rights violations against Uyghurs, to the point that the US ended up putting iFlyTech on a trade blacklist. Robotics company Rokos, Icehouse Ventures and online schooling platform LearnCoach 
all had dealings with iFlyTech. More importantly, all of them received New Zealand government funding, some of which was through the Aspire NZ Seed Fund, which invests $20 million a year in tech startups. Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson wants more information about what happened, saying government funding was done at arm's length. Are you saying that if we do want to, I guess in a way, keep our integrity, then the only way we can ensure that is to not work with companies in China? I don't think there would be a need for a blanket cut-off. I think, I mean, it does depend quite a lot on the area that you're working in. Right. There would be certain areas that, you know, where you're a long way from potential human rights abuses. Yeah. And I guess you also need to weigh up the significance of, you know, what the New Zealand contribution is in any given project. But um, I think just a greater awareness of um, both upstream and downstream elements of your supply chain. Do you think, though, in the New Zealand response to things that are happening with China, that it, it is a lot more of not rocking the boat and keeping the peace rather than really trying to take a stand on issues? Well, I think New Zealand is potentially conflicted and not united on this. I think there is a, appears to be a fairly genuine desire to have an ethical foreign policy. But on the other hand, you have to balance the symbolic with the substantive. When you say New Zealand taking a stand, if that just means issuing a strongly worded statement or something like we that. We do that quite well. <laughs> you know, what, what, um, what is that going to achieve necessarily? And then I think there's also a yearning in some parts of the New Zealand foreign policy, not so much the foreign policy system, but maybe in the political and business establishment to say, well, maybe we shouldn't see ourselves as part of that Western sphere of democracies and maybe we should have a more even-handed approach to uh, international conflicts involving China and the US, for example. So what is happening in the New Zealand tech sector? Graham Miller is the chief executive of NZ Tech. It is the fastest growing industry in New Zealand. And, and prior to COVID, there was, there was dairy and there was tourism, which were the big earners for the country. And technology had already grown to the third biggest export earner. Uh, employs a lot of people, just under around about 100,000 people employed directly by tech companies in New Zealand. Uh, and then you look at the digital workers that work in other industries. Uh, there's another 50-odd thousand, 60-odd thousand people that work in IT roles in other industries. But as a growth engine for New Zealand, we've, we're seeing a growing number. And that's one of the changes in, in sort of that last decade as well, is um, we were looking to have a few companies that could, you know, have a $50 million, $100 million size and scale. We would celebrate, we'd send a letter to the government of success if someone raised a couple of million dollars. Uh, that's happening in the, the five, tens and 15 millions every week now. And every week? Yeah, and we've wow. got companies with... with I think we've got over 50 companies now with over $50 million in, in um, international turnover. So, yeah, it, uh, it's, a, it's a great success story. It's, it's a success pilot on success. New Zealand's really got at niche products and services. So, so like what? Well, so you look at Sequin, who was just uh, purchased the other uh, last week for a, a billion dollars um, by a big U.S. company. Uh, they focus on ground 
analysis. So think of it like a CT scan of, of a human body. And this nice 3D visualisation will appear and you can move it around, cut and dice it, have a look at a particular circulatory system or whatever. We provide exactly the same thing for the geological body. And that's useful for mining, it's useful for um, construction and for, for emergencies, even zero. Zero helps you get paid faster, reduces data entry and gives you time back in your day to spend on what matters. You could say that it's a small business accounting as a, as a sort of a big market, but to, to decide to do a, a SaaS-based product just for small companies is quite a niche play versus every other accounting firm was looking at the big market. We're, we, we seem to be, and it was Paul, Sir Paul Callahan who said this, we're experts at niche. So the one thing about global businesses and all this foreign investment is that, yes, we're dealing with a lot of different countries and there's a lot of different political situations. There are issues that are coming to the forefront, like human rights violations in China and, yeah. and things like that, where it's getting increasingly difficult for New Zealand to keep that line because it's our biggest trading partner or our integrity do mm. do you, is is that yeah. how you feel uh yeah i think i think there's definitely more emerging issues that are playing out beyond that that technology like something like Huawei conversation and whether or not they've got embedded software that's helping them spy that's a bit um pushing the boundaries really they may or they may not but there's no evidence that they do but when you start to go to things like other issues like human rights and then how that flows on into economic relationships from a tech sector perspective the the only advantage comes up at that point is that by far most of our tech exports go to the US or the UK um, Australia uh, Singapore sort of but the US by a long shot right so the, the types of products and services we have historically made are well embedded in those markets. We've seen a lot more um, engagement with uh, the Chinese market around some of our interactive media and gaming and, and that sort of space. It's more of an opportunity lost than an opportunity cost at this stage. If we can keep the balance right, then we've got two big markets that we should be able to quite rightly serve up lots of nice niche targeted products. If we get the balance wrong, um, doesn't change much about what's currently happening with the market. But while the tech sector might not be directly affected, many of our primary industries which use advanced tech would be. Last year, China showed just what could happen after Australia called for an independent investigation into the origins of COVID-19. The Chinese have decided that they're going to make an example of Australia. Mm. What we saw uh, extraordinarily, though, was that they gave... Jono, a list of 14 grievances, which outlined for the first time what they were really angry about. And on that list, Jono, are things we could never give up. Exactly right. You had things like uh, foreign investment decisions. Uh, you also had foreign interference laws. But then essential elements of the democracy, like free media and the right for politicians to speak in a democratic way in Parliament. It was just extraordinary to see the length of this list and the language of this list laid out in such blunt terms. And the embassy official said to me when, when she handed it to me was, I want it to be clear this is what China is concerned about. If you make China the enemy, China will be the enemy. Australia, of course, is similar in that uh, it depends enormously on trade with China. It, China is by far 
Australia's biggest export market. And over the last year, we have seen China express its unhappiness with various moves on, on Australia's part by restricting trade uh, under a whole variety of different pretexts. But this has clearly you know, had real effects on Australia's lobster exports, its wine exports, its barley exports and various mm. other goods and is a demonstration of what China is able to do um, to a trading partner. And this is, Australia isn't the only country that they have sort of flexed their muscles in this way. New Zealand has so far largely avoided anything like this, but we would obviously be just as vulnerable it would involve quite drastic action for the government to say we are going to downgrade our economic ties with China because of ethical concerns. In fact, what we've seen recently is the upgrading of the New Zealand-China yes. FTA. And it's, I think there is an awareness um, that the degree of dependence on China is does create vulnerabilities. Mm. But at the same time, that dependence has arisen as a result of the decisions by trading firms that are not controlled by the government and they sell their product where they find the best market for it. And so for all the talk about it would be desirable to diversify away from over-reliance on China, it is hard to, tr to actually translate that into action when the economic incentives for particular products is that China is your best, best and biggest market. But our best and biggest market is on a clear collision path with our old friends and allies. We are in the midst of a fundamental debate about the future and direction of our world. We're at an inflection point. That's US President Joe Biden speaking at the Munich Security Conference last month. Between those who argue that given all the challenges we face, that autocracy is the best way forward, they argue. And those who understand that democracy is essential, essential to meeting these challenges. Historians are going to examine and write about this moment. And I believe that every ounce of my being, that democracy will and must prevail. And if we work together with our democratic partners, with strength and confidence, I know we'll meet every challenge and outpace every challenger. You know, we must prepare together for long-term strategic competition with China. The US has woken up to the fact that the Chinese economy has developed to such an extent that the US is no longer secure in what it has always called its technological edge. Mm. That is, its superiority across both civilian and military technologies that would give it a significant advantage in any future military conflict. One of the ideas raised by the Biden administration to push back on countries like China is to have a summit for democracy, basically a get-together with the world's democracies to strengthen them and confront nations that, as Biden puts it, are backsliding. A part of that is to create a tech democracy and the rules that govern the use of tech. But Natasha Hamilton-Hart is sceptical. I don't think the summit of democracies is necessarily going to happen. Um, right, you have so, a little doubt there. <laughs> so, well, the US um, is clearly... Well, the potential members of this get-together are not necessarily all in favour. And the US also recognised, and in its recent statement on national security, it's quite clear that it knows it needs to work with countries that are not democracies. It needs to work with Southeast Asia. 
after its core alliance partnerships with Japan and South Korea, it singled out Singapore and Vietnam as key partners in the region. Now, Vietnam is most definitely not a democracy, and Singapore is a, its own version of democracy. So it is clear that they know they cannot just work with democratic partners. Does that mean you think Biden's desire to set the rules and standards around how we use how the world uses tech mm. or at least democracies mm. use tech is just a pipe dream i think there's an effort that is again not new to biden this is already underway on the trump administration to try to encourage allies and partners to adopt the technologies that would be consistent with the United States' preference. So, for instance, there's clearly been some encouragement of allies and partners to not have Huawei technology used in their 5G infrastructure. And um, to differing degrees, the US has actually succeeded for some of its key Western partners that for, for different declared reasons, they have not adopted Huawei technology in their 5G rollouts and that is something that I think the U.S. would clearly like to encourage using its sort of legal instruments around who, which have sort of extraterritorial reach around which firms are able to do business with certain Chinese counterparts. And if you want to supply to the U.S., you may need to actually develop a parallel supply chain or uh, alter some of your existing ties to Chinese players that are on their entity list. So well, I think it is the case that the US is trying to encourage a sphere where Chinese technology is locked out of critical infrastructure and other technological standard setting. And China has also recently released a lot more details about its five-year plan. Um, and tech is one of the things that they are really pushing for. What is it exactly that they want to do in the tech space? I think what China wants to do is acquire national autonomy to not depend on foreign technology. And so this is quite a long-standing aim on the Chinese part. Um, some years back, they, they released a, a strategy called Made in China 2025. They don't refer to that because they realise that that is um, sensitive but there's been no suggestion that they are in any way relinquishing the goal that by 2025, China will no longer depend uh, for critical technology inputs on other countries. And they have invested enormously both through direct subsidies and uh, working through state-owned enterprises and through university research institutes and its whole array of research and development to massively increase their technological capacity so that whereas not so long ago the level of sophistication in terms of cutting-edge technology in China was quite a lot behind what would have been seen in the leading sort of players in Taiwan and the US and other places, uh, this, this they are closing the gap extremely rapidly. And of course China has for some time had an enormous edge on the manufacturing side. Mm. So what we would likely see is two parallel systems. That is a possibility that um, people are starting to talk about, is will we see a kind of 
US Western centric supply chain sphere where chips are manufactured and the design and the manufacture and everything else takes place in various places around the world, but not China. Mm. And conversely, a China centric system where everything from the design to the manufacture is done in a sort of Chinese facing sphere. And for some of the very largest companies like Taiwan Semiconductor conductor manufacturing have actually announced plans that they will locate some of their manufacturing facilities in the US, uh, which does sort of speak to, in a sense, having a within one company parallel supply chain. Um, For smaller companies, they won't be able to do that. I've heard it referred to as techno-nationalism. So it's a new, um, it's kind of like the Cold War Oh, but it's on technology now. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it, it's become obvious to these big superpowers that the future of their industrial and, and social and economic strength is in high tech. And it's in artificial intelligence, it's in robotics, it's in semiconductors and those sorts of things. And fortunately for us, we have a, uh, a relationship. that The largest market for the tech sector at the moment is the US, but the largest market for New Zealand is China. So we do have relationships with both of those those parts of the economy. Um, so on the positive side, when you're not trying to be playing at, in, with the big boys at the big boys' table with the big stuff, it's it's what niche things will we do with artificial intelligence? Or what niche things will we do with robotics? We're not going to be running the big factories. If you look at it from a glass half full view, uh, New Zealand's uh, relationship with both our, our small size and our sort of tech neutrality should enable, we don't need a very big piece of the pie to have good economic growth in New Zealand, should enable us to keep going. From the glass half empty perspective, there is risk um, of shaving off half of the global, the fast growing part of the market if we end up being seen to be siding with one or the other. For me, it feels like if we can play the Switzerland card in technology, then we're probably better off trying to avoid too many of those big, hairy issues. That's it for today. I'm Jessie Chang. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansel and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Natasha Hamilton-Hart and Graham Miller. Matewa. Matewa.